Well, if you have a Bible, can I encourage you to open along with me to Philippians and to chapter 4 as we get back into this chapter together this evening. And Well, we're going to go as far as chapter 13, we're not just, or verse 13 rather, um, starting up in verse 1. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Father, we long to be a people who are content as we live in a world of so much discontent, and we're encouraged, almost enticed, seduced into constant discontentment. We never seem to have enough. We never seem to be thin enough, or tall enough, or good-looking enough, or fit enough. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough success. We compare ourselves with other people and other things. The temptation to be discontent is constantly before us. So teach us tonight about the secret of contentment. We ask for this help in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul makes some staggering statements about contentment in verses 11 and 12. He says, I've learned to be content, first of all. He says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Now, even the simplest reading and understanding of these verses tell us so much. It's possible to, cont to be content, number one. Secondly, whatever happens to us, good or bad, it's possible to be content. And thirdly, there's a very important secret to contentment that we need to know and we need to avail of. Now, I'm sure you're aware of that expression, if you could put it in a bottle and, and uh, sell it, you could make a fortune. 
well, if only we could get contentment into a bottle, we would sell it and make an absolute fortune. Thomas Watson, um, a, a Puritan um, from obviously a long time ago, produced a pamphlet about contentment. In fact, you can get it online now. It's, there's no copyright because of the years that have gone by. And, and uh, this is towards the end of that pamphlet. This is what he says, the art of divine contentment. He says, the content spirit is a silent spirit. In other words, no grumbling or no murmuring against God in his ways. A content spirit is a cheerful spirit, joyful, positive, always looking to the good. A content spirit is a thankful spirit. In other words, the heart is laminated with thanksgiving for what they actually have rather than concentrating on what they don't have. The content spirit is not bound by circumstances. In other words, they're shielded from always being tossed back and forth by changing situations. And lastly, the content spirit does not avoid trouble or pain by means of sin. In other words, the content spirit does not chase after sin as a false answer or as a distraction in a miserable world. So, his argument, and of course, the argument of Scripture is that one of the distinguishing marks of a mature Christian is a spirit of contentment. However, it's rarely seen like that. People will seek after power and position and all kinds of things, but not contentment. It's an extremely undervalued grace. And I think we're going tonight to learn again about the value and the power of contentment. Four verses, three points. Let's think about them in order. First of all, in verse 10, we see the essential foundation that we must have if we're going to be content. Verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. There are, there are a number of foundational doctrines that need to be in place if we are going to learn to be content. And one of them is that God is sovereign, that everything, and I mean everything, is under His sweet sovereignty. The, the, the second doctrine that we need to have in our grasp if we're going to be content is that God cares. So, God is sovereign, and God cares. And God shows us His care actually very often through people. We're going to see that in a few moments' time. So, God is sovereign, and God is care. And because God is powerful, in control, loving, and wise, we can rejoice and delight in every situation, in every condition. And that's why that little phrase, in the Lord, of verse 10, is so very important. Because sometimes we might be tempted to think that these little phrases like, in the Lord, or Lord willing, or that they're simply padding. They're just extra words squeezed in that you sometimes used to do at school when you were running short of ideas. You just padded it out. No, this is very important. These little phrases, in the Lord, because it speaks of His sovereignty and His care. 
Now, you remember Joseph when he was um, meeting up with his brothers and they had gone through all the rigmarole of the uh, revealing himself, hiding himself, and then revealing himself? This is what he said. Uh, even in the midst of all the mistreatment from the brothers, this is what he said. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. See, Joseph saw the sovereign hand of God. Joseph saw the caring hand of God, even in his suffering, even in the mistreatment of his brothers. He was content with God's sovereign, caring control. Now, think about that, of an example of someone who was content. A lack of contentment basically shows itself like this. God, you're not in control. God, I'm not even sure you care about me. God, I know better than you. God, I deserve this. I need this. I want this. I demand this. See, that's the angry response of a discontent heart. Remember Paul, when he's writing this book, this letter, he's uh, imprisoned in Rome now probably for about two years. A smear campaign is being waged against him throughout the church, particularly in Rome. There's an upcoming trial that he's going to have to face, which probably will result in execution. And yet, what does he say in verse 10? I rejoice greatly in the Lord. He, he could be joyful. I mean, the Lord was a source and provider of his joy, even in the bleakest of situations. That's how one writer put it. And God is in charge of all the details of life, the good and the bad, the positive and the negative. He has ordained not only what happens to us, but when it happens, how it happens, where it happens, what happens before it happens, and what happens after it happens. There's a lot of happens in there, isn't there? You getting the picture? So if I'm struggling with discontentment, what does that say about me? Well, one of the things it might say about me is that I'm not trusting in the real God. I'm not trusting in the real God. And the problem for, for some is that their God is not the God of the Bible. Interesting that tonight in our first catechism we thought about the, the true and only and living and real God. The problem with a lot of people is that their God is not that real God. Perhaps God is the God of their imagination. Perhaps God is the God of their desires. Perhaps God is the God of religion, but not the revealed God of Scripture. And what happens to us as we're tempted to be discontent and live whatever way we like, as, as John said, holding God by one hand and yet holding other things with the other hand, what we do is we create our own God in our own image, and therefore what we do is we produce an idol. That's always been the problem with God's people. I mean, in the first temptation in the Garden of Eden, Satan sowed a seed of discontentment in Eve's heart. 
She doubted God's authority. She doubted God's provision. She doubted God's goodness. She doubted God's word. And therefore, she was just a step away from sin. And the same is true for us. When we doubt his sovereignty and we doubt his care, we're just one step away from sin. So the essential foundation to contentment is that we must know that he is sovereign, that he is in control, and that he cares. I rejoice greatly in the Lord. Because everything for the Christian is in the Lord. However, here's the good news. God often uses people like us to help people like us. God often uses people like us to help people like us. That's why Paul goes on, I I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, we've got to have a wee bit of history here because the church of Philippi had been planted probably some 12 years before the writing of this letter. And it seems as if it's been roughly about 10 years since the church of Philippi was able to show any kind of support for Paul. Notice the word, at last. But that's not a sign of impatience, but a recognition that now they could help him. Because before they couldn't help him. The word renewed there, at last you have renewed your concern for me. I don't know what the ESV has, but that's what the NIV says. That word renewed was used of a flower or a plant that blossoms again after a fallow period. You know, it's, it looks as if it's dead, but it suddenly, bang, it comes to life again. Paul is so pleased that they were supporting him, but he saw it as much a blessing for them as it was a blessing for him. Do you see that? Everything did not fold because they had stopped giving to him. But if they had not restarted their giving, then Paul knew that they would, they would suffer for it. They would have withered because part of understanding the function we have is that we are supported when we are in need and we support when others are in need. In other words, we receive in the sovereignty and care of God all that we need and then when we see people around us who are in need, we seek to help them with our care. So God was working in them, and it was benefiting Paul, but of course it was also benefiting them in their understanding of the ways of God and of contentment. At last, you have been renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. In the past, they couldn't, but now they could. And they were beginning now to become a little more fruitful in ministering. So it wasn't just Paul benefiting. It was everybody benefiting. So Paul's not angling here for a gift. He's not criticizing them. He's, he's not even disappointed with them because he's not solely reliant on people for his contentment. But he appreciates that now they're able to help him, then they are being blessed in their giving. They were becoming like a flower that was blossoming again 
after being followed. They were like a, a fruit-bearing plant that had been barren for a period of time. I think it's very important we understand this. The role that we have in helping people when God has been so good to us. Paul is not kind of a demanding, entitled one who thinks he deserves special privileges or special treatment. I don't know if you've ever come across entitled people. I have. They're so narcissistic, aren't they? Demanding. And when people can't or won't meet their needs or their expectations, then they just point the finger and they start blaming and they criticize and then they move on. And these people very often move from person to person, from group to group, and even, yes, from church to church. And what happens is they tend to suck people dry of love and resources and energy, and then when they've done that, they move on to the next victim. Narcissistic behavior, but not our Paul. Because Paul knew who was in control, and he knows who cares for him? But he also knows that God uses people like us to help people like him and people like us. Now, what's the application for this? Well, I think it's pretty obvious, isn't it? We, we've got to know who's in control, and we've got to know who cares. We've got to hold on to those two doctrines. If we do not know these two doctrines, then we are going to struggle. Can I assure you, you will struggle with contentment because you'll always be looking for some other answer, for some other source of satisfaction. You've got to understand who's in control and who cares. And secondly, you've got to realize that God brings people into our lives to help us when we have a need. And He also asks us to help others when they have a need. That's how he does it. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. This essential foundation must be in place for contentment. But secondly, with some crucial lessons, particularly a crucial lesson we need to actually learn in verse 11. I, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Whatever the circumstances, we need to learn a lesson. We need to learn the lesson of contentment. Now, it's not a natural gift because he says here, we've got to learn it. It's not a personality trait because we have to learn it. And Paul didn't learn it in Judaism. He didn't learn it in his intellectual study. He didn't learn it in his own experiences. He learned it in the, the school of discipleship with Jesus. Because in Christ, we must and we can learn to be content. Now, I know that we can meet people in life, and sometimes they can be just naturally laid back and naturally positive and easygoing, and, and it seems, and they perhaps are content. But, but we're talking about something a little more here. We're talking about something different. We're talking about a practice that has to be learned. And it's hard work. But it's what a disciple does, you see. 
And when we're in the school of Christ, we learn to be content. And if we don't learn to be content, we will be discontent. This is constantly hard work because, as the text says, and as we know, circumstances change all around us. Life is all about change, isn't it? It doesn't really stand still for very long. So the call is to learn to be content, whatever the circumstances, verse 11, and in verse 12, in any and every situation. Do you know what tomorrow's going to bring? Of course you don't. You might guess, and you might be right, but you don't know for certain. Or next week, or next month, or next year. Circumstances are unstable. Circumstances are ever-changing. And if our contentment is based on our circumstances, then we're going to be disappointed. And so Paul uses three pairs of extremes. Need, plenty, well-fed, hungry, plenty, wants. He says, I've learned to be content because Jesus has taught me. So practically, what does this mean? Well, it's a calm acceptance of our present lot in life. A calm acceptance of our present lot in life. We've got to see the sovereign God in his caring control has given us this and he's given us that. And we've got to learn to be content. We might think, I would like something else. But we've got to learn to be content. Now, what does the Bible say about these kind of areas? Well, I did share this last time, so I'll share it again because it's still true. Um, with our salaries, for instance. In Luke 3, verse 14, John the Baptist gave some soldiers advice about the repentant life. This is a text that probably we don't really read terribly often because it's kind of in between the, um, the birth story and also then the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But this is what John the Baptist says. Don't extort money. Don't accuse people falsely. And be content with your pay. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, you... Um, you shouldn't take a, a raise, or uh, if it's offered to you, you know, I, I don't think, I hope I'm going to get a raise this year. The committee haven't decided yet, but just dropping a little hint there, you know. It doesn't mean that we can't change jobs. If there's going to be some more lucrative salary, it, it doesn't mean that, but it means we learn to be content with what we have right now in the pay that we're given. But there are very... A lot of other texts of Scripture, particularly actually 1 Timothy 6 is full of advice about contentment. In verse 8, but if you have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Content with the necessities of life. Normally, of course, where we come from, compared to Uganda, where we saw last night, we are blessed with many luxuries as well as necessities, aren't we? But that's where contentment should be. That's our baseline. We should be content with the necessities of life. But in verse 6, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. There's a struggle between godliness and contentment. And if you struggle with godliness, then you'll struggle with contentment. And vice versa. If you struggle with contentment, it could be because you struggle with godliness. One feeds off the other. And Hebrews 13, verse 5, be content with what 
you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. In other words, a sweet, beautiful present provides riches and blessings, and he will provide and he will protect. See, we can and we should learn to be content, but it does require effort and requires learning and, and relearning. So are we getting a picture here? This foundational doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the care of God, and often uh, seen in, uh, and appreciated in people and how they bless us, that's essential, we understand that foundation. But then there's this lesson in the school of discipleship under Christ. We must, we must be taught how to be content by the way we study the Word, by the way we fellowship with His church, by the enabling of His Spirit. But there is a third thing, the secret that Paul talks about in verses 12 and 13. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. So, we must learn the secret. We must possess the secret. So, this isn't about denying reality. Some, some non-Christians say, oh, Christians are just don't face up to reality. It's not, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about distracting ourselves from the boredom of an empty life with all kinds of diversions, a cocktail of booze or work or entertainment or image, such like. We're not told here to be like the old stiff upper lip, you know, just take everything on the chin. We're not talking about those things. We're not talking about lowering our expectations. We're not talking about living with less. We're talking about a secret. And the secret is displayed there in, at verse 13, through Him who gives me strength. The answer, the secret, is not a what, it's a who. It's Jesus. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything. In other words, I can do all of that through Him who gives me strength. So we find all we need in Him. We, we see are all in all in Him. We see our satisfaction alone is given in Him. That's verse 12 and verse 13. Verse 13 should not be separated from verse 12. See, when He is the core of our lives, when Jesus is the core of our lives, we will be content. When He's not at the core of our lives, we will never be content. So how do we have Jesus at the core of our lives? When we worship him, when we obey him, when we be his student, when we repent of our sin, when we trust in his sacrifice, when we love his church, when we engage in his mission, the list is endless. That's how we can get the secret. It's him. It's having him. And when this happens, when these things happen, then he's at the, the center, the core of our lives. And then... Then we will understand the secret of contentment. So, if we are discontent or dissatisfied, then if we're unhappy, if we're constantly miserable, then Christ is not at the center of our lives. Well, can I say it again? If we are 
discontent, dissatisfied, unhappy, constantly miserable. Jesus is not at the core of our lives. He can't be, because if he was, he would change how we see things. He would change how we understand things. He would change how we want things. See, the secret is Jesus. And here's the question I have to ask you as I ask myself. If we have Jesus, is he enough? If we have Jesus, is he enough? If he's not enough, what else do you think you would need to have to have enough? I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, verse 13 is one of the most quoted Bible verses. You, you probably see it all over the place and on roadsides and plaques and walls. And It's one of the most quoted Bible verses, and it's one of the most misquoted Bible verses of all. It's horribly abused, this verse. Taken out of context, and basically saying, this is a magical formula to get whatever you want. So you see, you know, I still have a notion in my mind that I will play for Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. <laughs> and I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Ulster rugby need me in their team. I go occasionally to matches with, with, with Brett and the guys, and, and I, they, they joke about me having my boots in the car. I always have my boots in the car, just in case they need me. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It's ridiculous, isn't it? This isn't a verse about the power of positive thinking. It's not a verse for selfish name it and claim it theology. J.B. Phillips, I love old J.B. Phillips. Probably the best. If you want a good paraphrase, he's the best paraphraser. I am ready for anything through the strength of the one who lives within me. It's him, you see. It's Jesus who's the secret of contentment. Notice, um, just put that verse up there. Notice, I can, not I may. Do you know, were you ever in the school classroom when somebody would, or somebody put their hand up and say, can I go to the toilet? And the teacher would say, I don't know. Because when you say, I can, you're asking, or can I, you're asking for permission. But when you say, may I, or I may, then, sorry, it's all the way around. Um, yes, may is asking for permission. Can is ability. I can. You see, I can. I've got the ability. I have ability to be content through him. Do, by the way, is a very strong word. Uh, power, strength, everything. I can do everything. The ups and downs of life, the pain of life, the anxieties that come our way, the extremes of plenty or want. He's ready He's already painted that out. Through him, the Lord Jesus, Paul's whole life was about Jesus, wasn't it? To me, to live is Christ, who gives me strength, dynamite, power. So if I lose my job or I keep it, if I'm healthy or if I'm sick, whether I'm free or imprisoned, whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm popular or lonely, I can do contentment through him, he gives me strength. 
See, there's a war going on in my heart. I wonder this war going on in your heart. What I want for me and what he wants for me. And this bang, it goes on all the time. What I want, want, want. And what he desires and demands and commands. By the way, Paul's not saying we enjoy unemployment or sickness or poverty or loneliness. No. But what he is saying that we ought to be content even in these negative situations because we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world where bad things happen. Sickness comes. Unemployment comes. Poverty comes. Loneliness comes. But we can, we can, we can manage. We can not just survive. We can thrive because of Him. I can do everything through Him who gives me strength. He's the secret. So the secret is Jesus. Do you have Jesus in the core of your being? Do you love him like no one else, like nothing else? There's no other gods before him? Then you've learned the secret of contentment. But if you don't have him in that position, then it doesn't matter how hard you try, you can never be content. So the foundation, this doctrine, the sovereignty of God, the caring of God, and often received through the generosity of people. Really good. The lesson is learned uh, in, the, in the school of discipleship as we study and fellowship and worship and, and trust. But the secret is the, the cream on top, isn't it? It's the, the person we must possess, the Lord Jesus himself. You see, my, my biggest problem is not you. My biggest problem is me. But my strength and my life and my hope is Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus. You see, the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. He's my, he's our daily bread. He is for us and he's in us. He's the secret and we must have him. All of us need to be theologians, you know. We need to know the truth and we need to practice the truth. And this is good news as we grow older and sicker and weaker and maybe even poorer. Here, here's the good news. I can be, we can be content because we have him. We can go through the negative things, the negative times because we've got him. We can go through the positive times, the positive things because of him, because our Savior is the crucified one, the risen one, the ascended one, and the returning one. So have the foundation in place. I believe in his sovereignty. I believe in his care. And I believe that very often he will use people around me to bless me, and he'll use me to bless others. That's the foundation. The, the lesson is learned in the, in the schoolroom with, of Jesus. But most of all, the secret is him. Let's learn these things together and may you have a content, a contented week ahead of you. Can I pray for us all? Lord, um, crucially important lessons for us to learn in this um, world full of so many reasons to be discontent, so many attractions, so many things trying to capture our minds and hearts. And here we are, you tell us uh, what 
the way of contentment is. So, thank you for these words. Thank you uh, for the study. Write these words on our hearts, and may we go from this place and be contented disciples of the Lord Jesus, trusting in Him. We pray in His name. Amen.